Toward the end of 1864, Pope Pius IX issued a syllabus of errors, in which, according to his opinion, there were 80 errors or heresies which needed to be condemned. That document provoked quite a response from a number of religious and political and social leaders, including from Charles Spurgeon. He mentions it in the introduction to his sermon with which he begins the year 1865. January the 1st, it's preached a Sunday morning at the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit. The title is True Unity Promoted. The text is Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Spurgeon says as part of this introduction that in essence he's not particularly troubled by a curse from the Pope. Uh, The unity of evil, he says, we're to break down by every weapon which our hand can grasp. The unity of the spirit which we are to maintain and foster is quite another thing. And so to be uh, cursed by the Church of Rome or the Pope of the Church of Rome is uh, rather something uh, of a, a commendation rather than anything else. In fact, says Spurgeon, I'd rather there were some more men, rough as Amos or stern as Haggai, though they may be, who shall denounce again and again all league with error and all compromise with sin and declare that these are the abhorrence of God. The text on this occasion, uh, which uh, provokes Spurgeon's introduction, uh, has been supplied to Spurgeon, as it usually is for his New Year sermon, by what he calls an esteemed brother, a clergyman of the Church of England. So in the last few days of the previous year, this man telegraphs or uh, posts to Spurgeon a particular text, and Spurgeon uh, has been in the habit of taking that text as his New Year sermon. He says it's clear from these words, first of all, that there is a unity of the Spirit to be kept, secondly, that that unity needs keeping, and thirdly, that a bond is to be used. And then he intends to uh, offer some particular counsels in two directions. First of all, relationships between churches as churches, and then relationships within churches, members to members. His first point then is that there is a unity of the spirit of which the text speaks which is worthy to be kept and his emphasis is that it's a unity of the spirit and so he wants us to understand that it's not an ecclesiastical unity. Now we need to be careful here and Spurgeon needs to be careful here. This is the letter to the church of Christ in Ephesus. So there is a sense in which it is an ecclesiastical unity. But Spurgeon is talking more about a unity of denomination or community or diocese or parish. And he says that's not what the text has to deal with. He says he himself is much inclined to a Presbyterian union among our churches. He's talking there, I think, about church organisation primarily but says, I cannot but perceive in Holy Scripture that each church is separate and distinct from every other church, the whole being connected by those diverse bonds and ligaments which keep all the separate members together, but not so connected as to run into one another to lose their separateness and individuality. So he says, the Scripture doesn't say here or elsewhere, endeavour to keep up your ecclesiastical arrangements for centralisation but endeavour to keep the unity of the Spirit. Then it doesn't say endeavouring to keep the uniformity of the Spirit, but rather unity. 
and Spurgeon works from the analogy in nature that there is variety there. And he says that in the church of God, I do not expect then to find that all Christians pronounce the same shibboleth or see with the same eyes. The same one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, we rejoice to recognise. But as to uniformity of dress, liturgical verbiage or form of worship, I find nothing of it in Scripture. Now again, we want to be careful not to assume that Spurgeon is saying something different or something more than what he's actually saying, but he's at least emphasising that we shouldn't expect every congregation to to be a a cookie-cutter reproduction of the one next to it. So what then is this unity of the Spirit? Well, first of all, you can't keep it if you don't have it. You need to ask the question, have we the unity of the Spirit? And you can only have the Spirit if you have a, a, a newborn believing soul in which the Holy Spirit dwells. So the first thing then is that the unity of the Spirit is manifested in the love that God's people have one to another. It is a, a unity that comes from our being joined together to Jesus Christ and is caused then by a similarity of nature. The unity of the Spirit, a unity of life, nature working itself out in love, sustained daily by the Spirit of God. So here's his point, that the the unity of which the Apostle speaks here is not a merely external unity. It doesn't consist in a mere likeness to one another on a shallow level. It is rather the, the spiritual reality of life in Christ that is worked out in love to one another, where we are joined together by bonds which are heaven-forged. It is not possible, says Spurgeon, to mutilate the body of Christ. Christ does not lose his members or cast off parts of his mystical body, and therefore it never ought to enter the head of any Christian man whether or not he shall have communion in spirit with any other Christian, for he cannot do without it. As long as he lives, he must have it. This does not check him in boldly denouncing the error into which his brother may have fallen, or in avoiding his intimate acquaintance while he continues to sin. But it does forbid the thought that we can ever really sever any true believer from Christ, or even from us, if we be in Christ Jesus. So this is more than the uh, the unity, if you like, of the universal church, we might say. The fact that we are joined together in Christ with every true believer in every place, and we might extend that every time, Uh, that where that unity of nature exists, where that similarity uh, abides, there there must be this union. And it becomes manifest in prayer and in praise and in labor. So there's a a unity in our praying to God, uh, says Montgomery, the hymn writer. Spurgeon quotes him, The saints in prayer appear as one in word and deed and mind, while with the Father and the Son sweet fellowship they find. I sometimes uh, think about what I call the, the the prison test, that if I were locked up in prison for the sake of Christ, Uh, Would I be able to pray and to sing with the person who was locked up for the same reason in the same cell as me? Well, if that were the case, I can call them my brother, even if we're not in a prison cell. And so there's a unity of praise, too. 
Now, I'm not sure you could say this today. Our hymn books differ after all very little. We still sing the same song, the praise of the same Saviour. I think Spurgeon would probably be a little bewildered by the uh, multiplicity of hymn books uh, that are available today or or approaches to hymnody. Uh, But there's at least the same praise of the same Saviour, and then the unity will soon discover itself in co-working or labouring together, a union in conflict with a common foe, contention for the common truth. So you see here, Spurgeon is not uh, promoting this kind of wild, shallow ecumenism. There's There's a unity with regard to truth, a unity with regard to faith, a unity with regard to love. And this is what he's talking about, a motto with uh, Martin Butzer, the uh, reformer, to love all in whom he could see anything of Christ Jesus. Be this your motto, brother in Christ, says Spurgeon. That's the point. If someone else is in Christ, then I, I have a, a duty and a privilege to love that man or that woman. And Spurgeon goes on, I trust it will be our privilege to show in our own persons, some of us, how sternly we can dissent and yet love, how truly be nonconformists to our brethren's error, and yet in our very nonconformity prove our affection to them and to our common master. He's referring here to uh, the uh, tensions and the divisions that there were, the uh, the problem of rising Catholicism, Roman Catholicism in the Church of England uh, and the fact that Spurgeon and others were standing against it. It lies behind some of those sermons to which we've recently referred with regard to baptismal regeneration and infants brought to Christ and not to the font. Um, But Spurgeon's point is that I can be thoroughly persuaded of truth. I can be profoundly convinced that brothers and sisters in Christ are in error, but that does not and should not stop me loving them, although it may influence the manner in which I show that love. So uh, the Christian cares only for the truth, for his master, for the love of souls. And when these things are not imperiled, his own private likes or dislikes never affect him. He loves as much to see another church prosper as his own. So long as he can know that Christ is glorified, it is a matter of comparative indifference to him by what minister God's arm is made bare, in what place souls are converted, or to what particular form of worship men addict themselves. So here is a genuine Catholicity, a genuine breadth of affection a concern, first and foremost, to see Christ glorified. Now, says Spurgeon, that unity needs keeping, and it's a difficult thing to do for several reasons. He offers two primary ones, which he breaks down a little. First of all, that our sins would naturally break it, and Satan is very active to mar it, to destroy it. If we were all angels, he says, we should keep the unity of the Spirit, but we have particular sins that come in and, and, and damage it. First of all, there's pride, then there's envy, and then there is anger. And I think if you've had any experience of church life, you will understand how pride, envy, and anger are the great wedges that so often divide brother from brother. If someone loves to have the preeminence, they, they want to have everything their own way, that's going to stop the church uh, being united together. Uh, it's going to stop 
two people who've got the same pride being united, certainly. Uh, often that pride is manifested in calling other people proud. Uh, the, the attack that uh, comes here, you always want your own way, which is uh, a slightly more polite way of saying, I really want my way. And so pride bubbles up. Then there is envy, when you cannot be satisfied with anything, not hammered on your own anvil or run in your own mould, when you can't bear that another man should be gracious or or gifted or uh, used by God. Or anger, when we cannot brook the smallest disrespect, when the slightest thing brings the blood into our face, when we speak unadvisedly with our lips. And if you've seen church members having what some call a a hissy fit, throwing their toys out of the cot, stamping around, shouting, waving their arms, yelling down a phone, you will know what kind of damage that does to the unity of the spirit. Spurgeon also warns us to watch out for our virtues, because sometimes our very virtues can betray us at this point. He uses the example of Luther, brave and bold, hot and impetuous, just the man to lead the van and clear the way for the Reformation, but how, in a bad temper, Luther calls Calvin a pig and a devil. On the other hand, Calvin is logical, clear, cool and precise, and uh, Calvin... On the one hand, responds graciously to Luther, but, says Spurgeon, he knows how to pierce him under the fifth rib when he's in the right mood. So he says, those were days when the courtesies of Christians were generally of the iron gauntlet order. Interesting, he suggests, that they were so used to fighting for truth that they treated even their fellow soldiers with suspicion. And that's... uh, an important warning, I think, for those who consider themselves Christian crusaders today. We must watch, he says then, the best of us must watch, lest we fight the Lord's battles with Satan's weapons, and so even from love to God and his truth, violate the unity of the Spirit. He also reminds us that not only are our own sins likely to break it, not only might our own virtues betray us, but Satan himself is busy to mar it. He does all he can to divide and destroy the church of Jesus Christ. So Spurgeon warns us, because uh, Satan's always ready to find a, a place to drive in that wedge of division, I am not when I join a Christian church to say, I am quite certain I shall never break its unity. Rather, I am to suspect myself of a liability to that evil, and I am to watch with all diligence that I keep the unity of the Spirit. Then, in the third place, there is a bond provided for the keeping of this unity of the Spirit, and this is the bond of peace. And Spurgeon urges that there should be much peace, perfect peace, unbounded peace between the people of God. And he uses some of the the language here from the Ephesian letter and from other places. That we're fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. That we are friends, friends to Christ and in him then friends to one another. We are brothers, we're born of the same parent, we're filled with the same life. And this itself ought to be a true bond. There's There's a membership of the same body. And shall this mysterious union fail to be a bond of peace to you. So he's he's emphasizing then this language that is found in the scriptures of fellow citizenship, friendship, brethren, members of the same body. And he says that's the bond of peace that ought to hold you together. 
Let it never be said of the mystical body of our Lord that there was such a monstrous thing in it that the various parts would not co-work but fell to battling one with another. And so he moves on then to these practical conclusions. Um, He says, I brought out the meaning of the text. But now the connection of the church with one one church with another and then the connection of one church member with another. These are the two primary spheres in which we need to work out that unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So then, first of all, connections between churches and then connections within churches. With regard to the connections between churches, it is not a desirable thing that all churches should melt into one another and become one. For the complete fusion of all churches into one ecclesiastical corporation would inevitably produce another form of popery, since history teaches us that large ecclesiastical bodies grow more or less corrupt as a matter of course. Huge spiritual corporations are, as a whole, the strongholds of tyranny and the refuges of abuse, and it is only a matter of time when they shall break to pieces. I think that's a a very timely warning against those who, even with the best of intentions, are trying to build their, their Christian empires, even if not for themselves, who who seem persuaded that the only way that the church can really survive and thrive is to establish these these great ecclesiastical conglomerations in which we're building up uh, conventions or associations or denominations or um, federations or fellowships or whatever it may be. That is not the kind of unity that we need if we are to truly advance the cause of Jesus Christ. He says, what what we want here is uh, the churches walking together in the unity of the Spirit when this church, though it's been baptized into the Lord Jesus and laments the neglect of that ordinance by others, yet feels that the unity of the Spirit is not to be broken and holds out its right hand to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. And when that church over there, governed by its elders, feels a unity with another church which is presided over by its bishop, when a certain church which holds with mutual edification and no ministry is yet not quarrelsome toward those who love the ministry of the word. So he's talking here about these different convictions and he's saying, can we recognise that there are God's people in some of these other congregations even though we ourselves might be conscience-bound not to enter into formal connection with that church or the denomination to which it belongs? In other words, could I go to the, let's call them the leader of another church which belongs to a particular denomination and could I sit down and talk with that man and pray with that man and seek to bless that man and be blessed by that man while perhaps I could never plant a congregation with that man? that I could still wish the the blessing of God upon him, even if that blessing, I would believe, includes him coming to a clearer view of certain truths. So, says Spurgeon, how are you going to pursue that kind of unity between churches? Well, it will never happen if if this church speaks of of his own or we might say of our own if any given church declares that it is superior to every other. There's never going to be unity if you think that you are the best of all possible churches in it. Now, 
Again, he's not saying you shouldn't be persuaded that you are right. What he's saying is that that shouldn't be an arrogant boasting. Any church which lifts up its head on high and boasts over other churches has violated the unity of the Spirit. The prayer meeting where someone effectively says, I I thank you, Lord, that we are not like other churches. That can be the the, the same Pharisaic spirit uh, raised to a congregational level. And then a church which would keep the unity of the spirit must not consider itself to be so infallible that not to belong to its membership is sin. That's, says Spurgeon, really instinctively schismatic. You're saying that unless you're a part of my own congregation or my own denomination, you cannot really be walking in righteousness and in holiness. That's ungodly, says Spurgeon. And then he uses a couple of examples. If you should stand possessed of a piece of ground where we bury our dead and another member of another Christian church should wish to lay his poor dead baby in our ground, there being no other convenient spot anywhere, would you be showing the unity of the Spirit if you said, no, your child was sprinkled, therefore it cannot be buried with us Christians? And the flip side of that, you've got uh, the, the so-called holy ground, of the uh, the Anglican communion and he uses the example of dissenters or Baptists being turned away from Anglican graveyards because they are uh, they are not Anglicans or he says what about rules that ministers not of your own denomination should never occupy your pulpit he says where's the love in that now again that's not a broad ecumenism that has no regard for truth and for for the 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 realities of of real christian fellowship remember he's already talked about this being the unity of the spirit and shown us what it really is but isn't there at least a possibility that there are men who are close enough to us in christ that we could have them in our pulpits even if we do not agree with all their convictions And he points out that the very text he's preaching comes from what he calls one of the most holy men in the Church of England. And so he says, if I expound it slightly for her benefit, he will, I trust, excuse me, for I do so in all honesty, desiring to aid him and many others in revision and reform. And he says, if this church were in the same condition as the Church of England, he would pray that he might be just as plain in his remarks. So he's talking here about this uh, antagonism to men who share fundamental gospel convictions but who are more suspicious than they perhaps need to be about their engagement one with another. If any church will take the Bible as its standard and in the power of the Spirit of God preach the name of Jesus, there are thousands of us who will rejoice to give the right hand of fellowship with a hearty greeting to all such, and we are every day striving to get other churches and ourselves more and more into that condition in which, while holding our own, we can yet keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see again that the holy balance he's trying to keep. He's not saying that our convictions are insignificant. What he's saying is they need to be kept in their proper place. And in the previous year, with the uh, the tensions that there'd been and some of the sermons that he'd preached, I think it's easy to forget that this is the kind of sermon that Spurgeon could also preach. 
And then, in regard to your relationship to one another as members of the same church, and perhaps for most of us who may not be engaged in that kind of uh, ecclesiastical connection at the highest level, this is what's really important to us. This is where we begin to build that unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is where, at the most fundamental level, we are demonstrating that same disposition and outlook which ought then to manifest itself in that wider affection for others who belong to the body of Jesus Christ. And so, he says, there are two real things that we need to do with regard to our relationship to one another as members of the same church, and that is avoid everything that would mar it and cultivate everything that advances it. What are the things that would mar it? Gossip. Gossip is a very ready means of separating friends from one another. Let us endeavour to talk of something better than each other's characters. Perhaps that's worth you thinking about. Uh, who do you talk about when someone is missing? It's very easy to slip into the habit of talking about the person who isn't there. What's the character of your, your, your conversation when certain names come up? Do you roll your eyes even? Do you, do you begin to dissect someone's character and someone's failings? Well, we need to be very short of subjects to begin to talk about one another in that way, says Spurgeon. And then he, he says envyings and pride. I think he could have added anger there. These are the things that he's already mentioned in his earlier sections in the sermon. We need to shake off envyings. We need to all rejoice in God's light. And if you've got vainglorious of late, shake it off. Uh, you're too proud, says Spurgeon. I hope to exercise a ministry in this place which will drive out those of you who will not acknowledge your brothers when they are poorer or of less education than yourselves. What if the man does mar the Queen's English when he talks? What does that matter so long as his heart is right? And it's a dreadful thing to, to see a church or at least some members of a church begin to object to the kind of people who are being converted, to the kind of people who are becoming members, to the kind of people who are being uh, cared for within the congregation. Uh, if that's the problem, Spurgeon says, I hope my ministry will, will take you away uh, while keeping them in. And then says Spurgeon, let's cultivate everything that, could, that would tend to unity. So here's the positive. If someone's sick, care for them. Suffering, weep with them. Do we know someone who has less love than others? Then let us have more to make up the deficiency. Do we perceive faults in a brother? Let us admonish him in love and affection. I pray you be peacemakers, everyone. In other words, do everything that the scripture calls you to do in pursuing holiness in pursuing unity, in pursuing real union of mind and heart, that, that oneness in mind that so adorns the church of Jesus Christ. And the thing to do there is then to live near to Christ. Divisions in churches never begin with those full of love to the Saviour, says Spurgeon. Cold hearts, unholy lives, inconsistent actions, neglected closets, he means there a lack of private devotion. These are the seeds which sow schisms in the body. But he who lives near to Jesus wears his likeness and copies his example 
will be, wherever he goes, a sacred bond, a holy link to bind the church more closely than ever together. And so we need to ask, first of all, am I seeking that kind of Christ-likeness which makes me glue in the church of Jesus Christ? Am I one who holds people together or who drives people apart? Am I glue or am I a wedge? And one of the ways we'll show that is by active investments in those relationships. I think of a, a lady I know who makes her way around uh, pretty much every uh, person in the congregation, certainly every member of the church over a course of a few days, uh, a few Lord's days. I see her working her way around and talking to people. I think of an, an older saint who's in this congregation and she's in a lot of pain but I see her investing in particular people. I see men and women who, who really don't, don't perhaps get much of a so-called profile in the church, and yet I see them acting as the, the glue that holds together people in the bond of peace and love. Different ages, different circumstances, different capacities, but investors caring for the sick, suffering, uh, sorrowing with the suffering, uh, making up for the love that others lack, dealing with the sins that can cause divisions, uh, that sort of the breeding ground in that kind of distance between church members, faithfully seeking to love one another. Well, if we can do that, uh, perhaps uh, in our own day and age, God would be pleased to go on glorifying his name in our midst and make us in our churches and between our churches, uh, something more than we presently are. Well, the next sermon we'll look at, God willing, is 614. So this week we've been reading 605 to 611, and next week it's 612 to 618, and the featured sermon, Sermon 614, also from Ephesians, is For Christ's Sake, Ephesians 4.32, and that's the title of the sermon as well. I hope to uh, be able to be with you then. I hope you'll be able to be with me as we dive once more into these wonderful truths of Jesus Christ brought to us by a servant of his that he has given grace and gift to speak to us still down through the ages in a way that brings a blessing to our hearts and directs us in the way that we should go. I hope that today's podcast has been a blessing to your soul. If you would like to share that blessing with others, please leave us a review on your favourite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. It makes a genuine difference. Thanks very much for listening.